The Way Out Podcast, Episode 10. Yes, I was born into a long history of prescription issues. Um, it's pretty rampant in my family. And uh, my grandparents actually were real, like, best friends with their doctor. So it was, if it was prescribed, it was considered okay. Even if it was not necessarily needed or overtaken, if it was something prescribed, um, it was okay. You could swap prescriptions and it was still okay. So I was born into that environment a very much church-going family, so um, it wasn't as honest, I feel, as somebody who was maybe spending all their time in bars or gambling money away or smoking crack and being homeless. I felt there was a lot more deception and, and secrecy to all of that and sort of wolf and sheep's clothing situations going on. So I was definitely born into that environment. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Our purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from 24 hours a day, AA Thought for the Day, Daily Reflections, Big Book Quote, Just for Today, As Bill Sees It, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check out the new official blog of The Way Outcast at www.wayoutcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at The Way Out Podcast. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on Stitcher and iTunes and following us on Twitter. And don't forget to tell your friends about The Way Out Podcast. The Way Out Podcast is on now. I'm your host, Charlie L. This week, we'll hear the experience, strength, and hope of Annie. Annie, welcome to the show. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. So we connected uh, in a, an amazing way through actually Twitter. And uh-huh. you reached out and uh, told me a little bit about your story, which I love hearing about different people's stories in recovery. And what really intrigued me about you, Annie, is that you're coming at it from a different angle than we here at the Way Out Podcast have traditionally come from, which is to say that you are a, a recovering codependent which I think is great uh, to have on this show. Uh, so what I wanted to do is uh, give you some time uh, to talk about uh, uh, where you're from and uh, maybe a little bit about your family of origin. And then we can start talking about your recovery journey and what happened and what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. So let's start at the beginning. So the youngest of six. Uh, is yes. that true? You were the youngest? Yep, the youngest. I have four brothers and a sister. Wow. We have a cloud family. Wow. We all live about 15 minutes within each other. Wow. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I only grew up 
with uh, an older brother and a younger brother couldn't imagine what it would have been like to loud. grow up in a family of six. Yes, it was yeah, loud. Yeah, I imagine <laughs> that having any sort of peace and quiet you know, probably wasn't uh, real attainable. <laughs> right, especially for boys. So <laughs> You probably toughened up pretty quick. Yeah, you kind of had to. My sister's um, a little bit more tender and sensitive than I am. I'm, I'm a little more thick-skinned and kind of roll with the boys right, right. than she ended up. But, um, yeah, we both learned to cope I pretty bet. well. I bet. So tell yeah. me a little bit about um, what prompted you to reach out uh, to me and uh, want to share your story. And, uh, and we can start talking about uh, your journey. Well, I had written a couple of articles and expanded those into a book that's coming out. And basically, I'd been just kind of trying to spread the word of my perspective of the story, which is kind of a, the mom's eye view or the family member's eye view um, with lots of years of experience coupled with lots of research because I didn't just get thrown into some of these situations. I kind of I like to be a student of any adversity that I'm in. So when things are happening, I tend to study them until there's nothing left to analyze. So coming from that perspective of the experience and the knowledge, um, not giving advice or an expert by any means, but just what's been learned from my experience. I was, I'm was i hoping to spread the hope and the empowerment and the information of that. And your experience comes from a your life experience, which really uh, has uh, had addiction from the very beginning. Is that correct? Yes, I was born into a long history of prescription issues. Um, it's pretty rampant in my family, and uh, my grandparents actually were real like best friends with their doctor. So it was, if it was prescribed, it was considered okay, even if it was not necessarily needed or overtaken. If it was something prescribed, um, it was okay. You could swap prescriptions, and it was still okay. So I was born into that environment, a very much church-going family. So um, it wasn't as honest, I feel, as somebody who was maybe spending all their time in bars or gambling money away or smoking crack and being homeless. I felt there was a lot more deception and, and secrecy to all of that and sort of wolf in sheep's clothing situations going on. So I was definitely born into that environment and very much aware of it from a young age. How did that feel for you knowing that probably folks from the outside viewed your family as somewhat normal and you knew inside that there was this dysfunction. Did that cause pain for you? Did that cause uh, some some problems for you? Well, I don't know how normal <laughs> we were viewed as because it's a big, rowdy family, and there were certainly you know issues happening. Sure. Um, sure. Even though we were a church-going family, um, but my main issue happened to be with my mother, um, and that's since come full circle. So um, I'm I have a much better relationship with her now, but for decades. It was as if, um, kind of, I compare it to like um, a bank robber and an FBI agent. So right. we kind of have this percussion to our relationship where I was constantly reacting to what I could sense was going on right. or what I would witness going on. Right. And then it had to be hushed right. or misrepresented. And it was, a, it was a constant tug of war, in my opinion. And growing up in that environment, did do you feel like that had any sort of impact on you as you went out into the world and started to form your own relationships and started to get into your own um, how did that impact you as you started going out into the world um 
I had a horrible time socializing. Mm -hmm. And I can still be pretty much a loner, but I had a lot of conflict issues. Um, always on guard for how somebody's going to, you know, um, misrepresent themselves or what's going on behind the sure. scenes. And as soon as I kind of sensed any inaccuracies, I would pounce or create conflict. And I didn't have an easy time bonding, especially not with females. Mm -hmm. So it was a, it's been a lifelong effect on my life. I bet. Did you, so many of us that are recovering alcoholics or addicts have a, a similar experience where we felt like we were different. We felt like we didn't fit in. We felt like we were apart from, not a part of. Is that an experience that resonates you as somebody who is in long-term recovery from codependency? Uh, well, yes, definitely, because nowadays it's more rampant to hear that there's prescription abuse than it's in suburbia or in family settings. But back then it was really hard to explain that there was this constant turmoil happening in a home and then presented differently to the world. So, yeah, it definitely had that effect. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely felt like alienated and I would always have these thoughts. I'm just not like this family. I'm not like this friend. I'm not like this girl. Like, I'm not like this person on a team or cheerleading, whatever. I'm different. I'm alienated. I have I have this to go home to. These are the conversations at my you know, dinner table. These are the issues I'm... I'm going to hear about prescription swapping and constant doctor's appointments and um, constant surgeries that are maybe not always necessary. So those were those things were such a part of my life, especially as I entered the ages of 12, 13, and 14, that I really, it just branched me off. Um, I have had the same best friend since I was about 9 or 10, and she was a witness to all of it. She was kind of who I clung to because there were never any discussions of, don't you think this is kind of weird? She just always kind of rolled with the punches and laughed about it with me. But otherwise, I couldn't long-term really connect to anybody. Right. As you uh, 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 get into your uh, 20s, and uh, tell me, tell me uh, how your life unfolds from coming out of a family, you're the youngest of six, there are uh, significant addiction issues, you seem maybe to be the only one sort of crying wolf as it were, well, not even crying wolf, crying truth, as it were, right. in this family dynamic, uh, as we talked in our pre-interview, really uh, ultimately ended up being much of the scapegoat. How, how does that, how does your life unfold as you go into your 20s? Well, I was kind of a disaster, mentally anyway. I, um, when you're somewhat scapegoated, and I don't mean that to sound like I felt sorry for myself, but it certainly was circumstance when you're, you're emotionally honest and you're reacting pretty much so the one who's the most volatile in the family is, is often reacting to the right. family dysfunction that's going on so um heading into my 20s i was i would say i was just so full of conflict and i had gotten married early and had my son and one of the requirements that i liked about his dad was that he was accepting of seeing some of the family dynamics. I didn't have to explain or apologize. It wasn't associated with my worth because I carried that for decades, that it was my worth and my embarrassment and my secret I had to protect, even though I despised it. I hated that part of my family, my family dynamic. And so I was just kind of stacking mess upon mess as a result of growing up in that, in such a dishonest environment. And so you get into uh, marriage, you, you, you're married early, you have a child, and does life change for you once this child is born? Yeah, I got really involved in Overboard with church, so that kind of became an out, like that became my way of, 
I guess I saw it as I was, it was my insurance policy that life wasn't going to end up bad. And my son wasn't going to go down a bad path. So I completely threw myself into that. And then our marriage didn't last, but we ended up still remaining friends. And that was pretty healthy for the rest of the time my son was growing up. Which we don't hear about a lot. And I think that's a, a true testament to you. So uh, congratulations on that. Thanks. I think really uh, to have a dynamic with uh, uh, in a co-parenting situation and that's the, the the best ultimately for the child that's that's amazing and it, and, and, it, and we'll find that uh, as we listen to more of your story and hear more of your story that that really ended up being a true asset and a gift for you right I mean we did butt heads and we still can sometimes and but um, we definitely would validate information and communicate and get everything out on the table and then move on. That is the biggest thing, I think, for any type of relationship. We would get it out on the table and move on. We weren't going to regurgitate old points and regurgitate old ego issues or anything in old wounds because that serves nobody. And you're not really you're not really motivated for peace or the well-being of your kid if you're all caught up in these issues. So we always kept it moving, kept it moving. That's fantastic. So uh, your son is born, and you throw yourself into church. The marriage doesn't end up uh, uh, materializing for the long haul. How long long were you married? Um, I believe we were married just under four years. Okay. And so your son's how old at the time of the divorce? Um, Oh, geez. I think he was was either – he was about nine, I think. Okay. So your son's nine years old, and tell me about that next chapter as your son's starting to embark on those uh, tween age to teenage years. Now tell me about that. Well, um, when we separated from his dad, my father went immediately into hospice, and we were expecting another few years for him. So it was kind of like, geez, life is just always going to be terrible, I guess. Right. So I had I had to come up with this a strategy. I tend to try to um, try to come up with methods in coping, especially if I'm in crisis. So I developed this strategy, and I, you know, discussed it with my dad when he was in hospice and kind of leaving last regards. And it was that if you set a goal in the midst of a crisis, that will always pull you forward. And you certainly have to melt down and deal with it. It's not about denying it or head in the sand, but you have to set these goals. So when those things happened, I trained for my first marathon. So I could take my son on runs with me, and he would go on his bike or his scooter or skateboard, and we would just have conversation, like action conversation, to where we weren't face-to-face. How are you feeling? Right. You know, yep. no kid, particularly a male child, wants to discuss things on that level. <laughs> I, so our next I, I chapter, have two of those, so I understand. Right, so you get it, right. Our next chapter veered toward that. So I became very goal-centered, and one of those goals was, We've just got to be sane. There's a lot of these things going on. We come from a background of a lot of religious crazy and, and family feuding, and there's a lot of personalities, so you're going to have that anyway. But we come from a lot, a big potpourri of issues. So my goal is sanity is the big goal in the midst of this. So I started studying and going to classes and workshops about psychology and peacefulness and well-being and making the best of crisis, and that became the obsession of the next 10 years. And through that obsession for you of well-being, and it sounds like in for for in very real terms for you, some self-discovery was starting to happen for you. Maybe you're starting to realize some of these dynamics that were happening because of your family of origin and some of the circumstances that you ended up having to 
be uh, a participant in or a victim of, depending on the situation. Um, what was happening with your son? Um, he was doing. He was really caught up in sports, and he was going. I put him in a private school at the time, and he was taking piano lessons. And he was incredibly ornery. Um, he wasn't real rebellious. He was pretty good at talking things through. We're really good communicators, so I didn't have any problems behavior-wise with him. We were just really focused on his schedule and his events and activities and keeping things peaceful as a family. And sometimes he and I would go stay at his dad's house. His dad had remarried, and, and my son had had two brothers as a result. So we would go stay on Christmas Eve so that everybody could wake up on Christmas. Mm -hmm. And it was a pretty peaceful time for the next few years after we were managing the grief of everything that had prior happened. Right. So We had a time of a... Of, of a good breath and good rest. So, some probably some much needed rest based on right. what what's about to transpire, right? Right. So, um, uh, how old was your son when he started to uh, experiment or uh, display signs of having some problems with uh, addiction? Well, he had never really been. It, what, it didn't seem like we were headed that way. I mean, he'd had a couple of experiences where he'd gotten in trouble and ex and went out with some of his football friends or whatever, but it wasn't a consistent thing. I didn't have consistent signs, mm -hmm. but he had had an injury his junior year um, and had to see a doctor, and he'd also had some dental work done. And both times I had asked for a prescription narcotic to not be prescribed because I was very familiar with the path of that. And both times they were anyway. So, so this, is, this is really important for me, and I think this really speaks to such a larger issue in our society, Annie, that you, because of your knowledge of your family history, because right. of the knowledge of what prescription painkillers had done in your family, you were uh, vocal in not wanting that prescription painkillers to, to be prescribed to your son. And that request was ignored. Right. Yes, that was ignored. <laughs> I, I kind of was made shocking. to feel a little bit crazy That's and shocking to me. That's shocking to me, by the way. So tell me what happened. So because of, you know, you're seeing these red flags and you're saying, nope, I don't think it's a good idea. This isn't good for our family. It's like fire. Right. It's like you know, it's 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 oil and water. It's not going to work. Right. And they do it anyway. What happens? Um, it was within a few months that we had a lot of conflict in the home, which is a good sign that something shifted. Right. So um, I just began to find the signs that it had moved from a prescription to probably a full grown, full blown dependency. And so your radar's up, and uh, being a good codependent at the time, your radar—I mean, you're all—you're—you're—you're you're, uh, you're on alert. And you know, I've uh, had uh, some experience with codependency, and I think one of the one of the trademarks of codependency is that high alert. If there's a shift in behavior or a shift in some sort of uh, pattern, even before uh, the um, uh, the just functional person or the addict in this case may even realize there's a problem red flags are going off all over the place uh -huh. is that sort of what you experienced um yes uh like just 
there are certain signs that you see with opiates, and I'm not as familiar with other prescription or addiction issues as I am opiates. Mm -hmm. There are certain things that are present with opiates. There's, um, and I know I talk fast, so it's not always the case, but there's this, what I call the opiate chatter, where it's an over-excitement, and they, they become condensed to two moods, a very bad mood or a very over-excited, grandiose mood. Mm -hmm. So I began to notice that, and it, I began to notice different types of people it brought into our home, different types of social media, um, and then just the constant conflict that we really hadn't had too much of. We hadn't had a damaged or dysfunctional relationship. We'd had normal annoying things, but nothing that was on a consistent perpetual basis dysfunctional, right. and we were having daily conflict. And this daily conflict, well, what were these conflicts around? Was it around his behavior? Was it around some of the things that he was or was not doing was it is that what was triggering the conflict um yes it was around based off around his moods mm -hmm. and his attitude then it would sometimes be around things that were missing um it would be just a complete personality and enthusiasm changed i'd notice and then sometimes he would just be in a bad mood and would a fight would just start. We we just never had that in our relationship, and it wasn't. It didn't strike me as teenage rebellion. It strikes, it, especially having the knowledge I did of opiate issues. It struck me as something a lot more sinister. And I, what I it developed into what I call nonversations, where you are relentlessly arguing a bottomless pit, and you never get to the bottom of it. You never get to the end of it. So I started um, breaking it down, and realizing when you're dealing with vitriol versus accountability for peace and resolution. That's how you can tell there's dysfunction present, if that makes sense. And the word vitriol, it means this really harsh, sinister, bitter type of criticism. And the word actually comes from, um, it means acidic. So they named it sulfuric acid after vitriol because that acid can burn through anything. So that vitriol, that criticism and condemnation, when that is present in your conflict, you've got some sort of dysfunction going on, whether it's abuse dysfunction, substance abuse, a jealous person. It is not somebody motivated by peace. And if you are if you are surging with them, you're never going to get to the end of it. And that is what all of our arguments kind of became, so, never getting to the end of it. Right. And it was fueled by something maybe apart from, uh, and uh, who knows, Do you, did you have any awareness? Let's ask this. At, at what point did you confront your son that you suspected that he had a problem? Um, well, his spirals tend to happen quick, so I, I didn't have to sit and observe for a month or for a year. It was um, just within a couple of months, and then I started checking his social media and checking through his room. And I wasn't one to snoop for no reason, but if you give me a reason, mm -hmm. I'm going to be a detective, and there's no limits or boundaries. So I started to snoop through things, and I had found, um, I found one day a pill crusher. And when I would find something like that, I would either go right to Google or I would drive to the pharmacy. And I knew a pharmacist, and I would say, what is this? What is it used for? What is it used for? That's not the, the intentional purpose of it. And I just kind of, I stayed on top of everything. And I would even Google things like, how do I know I'm being manipulated? And um, what does this mood change signify? So I stayed as informed as the situation needed for me to be. On an as-needed basis. By the way, Mindy, as a recovering addict and alcoholic, uh, uh, if I had you as my mother, I would not be a happy person in my active no. addiction. I would not 
be <laughs> a happy camper because no. not only are you smart uh, as a whip, okay, okay? About you're, that. you're motivated, okay, and yeah. super aware, right? Super aware, and I would tell him I am high energy and right. focused, and he, he will say I had to be almost genius level because... Uh, both of my parents were on to me and very smart about what was going on. So right, right, he, he had to stay 10 steps ahead because it was always level 10. Right, right. right. I mean, this is, this is like the ultimate game of addict and uh, um, codependent. FBI agent, right? Oh, my right. Lord. You know? Right. Wow. Which brings me to that point that we discussed where it was this this manipulation of this kind of smokescreen that could be created. When you have somebody, when you are in the insanity of, indic of addiction and you need to keep that going, and you have somebody who is aware and calling it out and trying to bring it into the light, your best defense is to paint a picture of that person as a villain or crazy. crazy. So right. my, I, I had to really calm my attempts down because, of course, for one, one part of the codependent side of me is that I always saw his death as what I was fighting against. So I would be in this panic um, just gushing and gorging myself on information and staying in it, sometimes following him just to you know, know where he was going and to deal with the people. And then he would easily make me look like I was not credible or crazy because sure. I would give him that ammunition and he needed that anyway. Right, right. So you were and feeding into his hands, right? Enough. Like my mom is, is uh, um, nuts and right. I, I have no idea – um, what's going on, but just know that she's nuts and I'm not the problem. She is, right? right. And, and as a good addict, that's what we do anyway at our You're active right. addiction. We make those people who are out to expose the truth about us that we're not ready to face, by the way. So right. um, this is something we're not even willing to face within ourselves yet. So to right. have somebody come out actively trying to expose that truth, that is... That, that strikes at the core of a, an active addict and an active alcoholic because that will absolutely endanger our ability to continue to use the sub substance we absolutely need. Right. That's why it was, I mean, it was a vicious dogfight most of the time for about five years. And on top of living in the fear and anguish and then having to go to work full time and play off that I could even hear what my clients were saying to me. So right. it was it was a terrible rabbit hole to go down. And from a personal standpoint and from a well-being standpoint, I, I imagine in, 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 even as high energy as you are, that must have, Annie, been exhausting. Yeah, it was excruciating, right? Yeah, but I was really driven by believing, which is another codependent thought, that I was saving his life and I wasn't doing it as the enabler because I believed that I had so much knowledge that I would be the other end of the spectrum and out consequence him and I would be the rails that would tough love him to his rock bottom and then I, but I was so far on, on that end of the spectrum and so caught up in that side of the madness I wasn't doing any good either and one of my friends would say to me it's not getting better it's it's not even getting different okay. so I, I you have to come to a place where you realize I'm not helping. Whether whatever my tactics are, whether they're I don't even call it tough love anymore. I call it smart love now. Because if I'm trying to tough love somebody and I'm obsessed and I'm on that roller coaster with them and I'm participating daily and I'm as crazed as they are, but I'm not high, I'm involved still. That's that's 
not helping anybody. Sometimes you just have to step back and hands off. They just, this is their journey. You said something so important there, Annie, in that you were trying so hard and you were putting everything that you could into trying to get your son to see the light, to stop, to because you really felt like you were saving his life. But in trying to save his life, you were losing yours. Right, and it wasn't saving his life. It wasn't saving his. <laughs> no, he wasn't stopping anything. And and so, was getting, he was getting better at it. That's right. And so ultimately, right. the only thing that was happening was that you were losing your life and nothing was getting better. Maybe it was getting worse. Maybe, But like you said, like your friend said, it wasn't even getting different. So, right. So really, did you have to surrender at some point? Did you have to? Did you have to at some point surrender and unhook? Uh, yeah, um, a lot. But, but when I started doing things like um, going in my work dress clothes and following him into neighborhoods that were some, you know, abandoned a lot of times and watching him walk off a porch and then walking up on that porch and I would try to come up with strategies. I'm not going to obviously physically threaten somebody or and most of them didn't care if I would say I'm going to get the police involved because it, that takes a long time. Right. So I'd have to come up with these schemes. I mean, it was that it was that much madness and wow. obsession. Wow. I would come up with these schemes where I would say I have a tent in my car and it's going to go in your front yard and I'm going to have the media here because you're dealing drugs and I'm going to call so much attention to you. And if you kill me for this, it's it's worth it anyway. I don't have anything to live for other than that my son gets well. So then I would sometimes I walked back to my car and I would vomit next to it and then drive to work and try to act normal. And then I would get a call from him in about an hour or so. You're ruining my life. Mm -hmm. Stay out of my life. Right. And I kind of felt like that was a victory. Right. And then after a couple of times of doing that, which is crazy, I would never tell or advise or want any parent ever to do that. After a couple of times of that, I just was like, what am I doing? This is not, he's not stopping. And it's, I'm just going to go nuts with it. We're both going to die from this. Amazing. What, what was the moment? Where did you hit your moment where you had your awakening and realized that you needed to do something different because really you, I'm, a great definition of insanity is continuing to do the same thing over and over expecting right. a different result. So you were doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. When did that awakening occur to you to try something different? Um, I think I just got worn out by the conflict and the scary situations, and um, I kept we kept experiencing things that I, I identify as the Elliot effect, because that's his name in the book, and it's where he would discredit me, or discredit whichever one of us was calling to kind of rat him out if a house had taken him in, or he was staying with a friend or whatever, because he bounced from a few homes for a while, and he's got the best personality, so he kind of reminds me of uh, like a Richie Cunningham personality. I used to uh, describe him as he will steal your purse and help you look for it. Um, I, love it. I love that line. I right. love it. I love now, it. that's his evil twin because when he's not actively addicted, that's really heartfelt and sincere. But when you're – you you obviously go to a dark side of yourself when you're in addiction. So those tools are all used one way or another, good or evil. So when we'd had so many experiences of that and one family took him in and the mom – I would see these families as kind of you're in the way of my cause. So you're kind of my enemy if you take him in because I'm fighting to box him out to where he has to make a decision to live. And a f another family would take him in just when we'd get him to that point. 
and I would um, try to call them and get them on board. This is what's happening. This is what's going to happen in your home. They would always believe it at first, believe him at first, and kind of battle his dad and I. You know, what kind of parents are you? You're you're a mean mom, and sure. we'd have so which many is efforts. hard to hear, right? Um, the first few times, <laughs> you get kind of used to it. You just kind of get a thick skin, and I was like, well, I'm not into this to make friends, and the truth eventually defends itself. So I'm going to go in like a sharpshooter, hit your artery, and come right back out. Yeah. So, so we just had so many situations like that. I mean, I could give a list of people that would get on board against us until they would get burnt themselves. So this one um, family had taken him in, and the mom was on board with, okay, she wasn't even aware of her own son having a problem. So I was like, this is what's going on in your home. Um, and then when she was getting ready to put him out, I ended up getting a message from her, and she's like, well, your son told me you think I'm stupid. So then it's like, so she, she ends up mad and offended. And then, I mean, so it's totally distracted from the entire situation. It made me the bad guy, mm -hmm. which is the Elliot effect. You got, you create the bad guy and it bought him time. So he was there for another few days. And then finally they ended up asking him to leave. And he had gone a couple of days and slept in a dugout where he played baseball. And that was grievous for me, heavy, dark grief. I mean, you don't sleep, you walk the floor, you don't want to run into anybody in public. I couldn't stand anybody talking about their kids or asking me about mine. So I intentionally went out of town on vacation right when he did that and said, you know, we, if you'll go to treatment, I will rush and be on board with that, but I have nothing else I can do for you or offer you. And I'm not going to try to fight anybody else taking you. And I am done with this. And you know, he's a little bit of a, um, he likes his comforts, so he didn't put up with that for long and ended up booking his own flight to California and has been out there for about three years. So, so that, that was the end of it. That sounds like the bottom. I mean, he came yeah. and he was a, uh, a, a successful athlete in high school. Right. And at the end of his addiction, he ended up sleeping in the same dugout that he right. played in. And right. that was your bottom, it sounds like, too, where you no longer felt like you had any ability left inside to, as you put out, consequence him. Right. He, I can't do this, Elliot. You need to just do you, however that works out. Here's your option. Whatever happens, happens. happens. We and are worn out. I've tried everything. Right or wrong, I have failed huge. I have attempted huge. I have tried everything, and whatever happens, happens. And you almost re reach, um, I wouldn't say joy, but you reach definitely a, a sense of relief. That the kind of the weight is off. Like, whatever happens, happens now. I've done everything. I've had conversations and written letters and chased you down and tried everything. And we're at this point, it's on you now. Everyone's fighting for your life except you. So you're just going to have to pick up the gloves and do it yourself. And it really sounds like, you know, uh, much like in my journey to recovery, I had to hit that place where I was willing to do whatever it took to recover. And before that, I got that gift of desperation. I was yeah. desperate enough to try something different, truly try something different. Not just think about it, not just but really try something different with everything because I was done. And it wasn't a try hard thing. It wasn't a, uh, it wasn't an obsession type of try. It was a, I give up. Yeah. And I'm going to accept things as they are. 
and right. then you're going to start to get better. And it sounds like for you, you kind of allowed him to get there. Yes. Uh, I mean, the there end. was just nothing more to do. There was just nothing more to do. It's like, I, I mean, you just reached that, the end of yourself. And that's a great place to be because it seems like that is when breakthroughs happen. <laughs> been I had a lot of energy and a lot of endurance, so yeah. <laughs> I ran the good race. <laughs> you know, you know in, in, in many ways, so did your son because obviously, like a good addict, he was very good at, you know, making sure that he stayed in his active addiction as long as possible. Now, when we're talking about prescription uh, opiates, that's a that's a serious serious addiction to that's fight for. That's a desperate through. addiction. It really is. That is that is a desperate, nasty addiction, and, and it is all consuming, and it will pull everyone in with it. I'd heard one of my friends who works um, counsels families in the court system had told me that it's almost like a baby mobile. And when that person who was addicted moves in any way or anything happens with him, everybody's dragged along. And the only thing you can do is, obviously, I use the word unhook, is kind of free yourself from it. And you put in the good effort if, if it's required. Do the research if it's required. But otherwise, you, there's nothing you can do about it. That's right. So a couple questions for you. And then I want to talk a little bit about your book because I think what a great way to be able to share your experience, strength, and health with others. One in three families in the United States are directly affected by addiction. One in three, that is absolutely staggering to me, and you represent a very real part of that addiction struggle that these families go through. Tell me if you could offer one piece of advice to a family member, a loved one who is struggling or dealing with um, somebody in the family or a loved one that has or is engaged in addiction, what would you tell them? I, I have two pieces of advice that I always tell. I meet with families every Tuesday in a treatment center and I share my story and I hear these family stories and I always have two pieces of advice. And the first one is, Educate yourself as much as possible. And I don't care if that's spending a couple of hours on Google or going and finding every book you can on addiction and the behavioral science behind it. Get together with uh, family counselors and talk to pharmacists. I would talk to drug addicts who were recovering and those who were active because I just, I kept, I have a stack of journals where I would just keep notes about it. So get informed so you know what you're dealing with. You know what has come into your household. And build a good team so that you have people you can melt down to or call and seek validation or maybe answers from when you're feeling like you're crazy or wondering if it's you or you don't know what to do and you feel completely alone. I didn't have a lot of people outside of the professionals that I ended up getting to know. That I, I spoke with a police officer, um, a therapist. I, I had a small team that I would call that would keep me informed. But outside of that, it wasn't as talked about yet in the community. So I didn't have a lot of people to turn to. So Gorge yourself on the information, I would say. And the other one is I found the three C's of Naranon and Alanon very helpful. And that is that you didn't cause it, you can't control it, and you can't cure it. And if you come back to those three dynamics over and over when it rises up, and it rises up internally as much as it does the situation in front of you. Absolutely. Return to that, and that's peace of mind and well-being. There's nothing I could have done to cause it. Some of the families I'll meet with that they will go for about 10 to 15 minutes about 
how great their son was. Their daughter was a ballet dancer. And they, what the family was like, what the family did wrong, that there's never even been divorce in the family. They have all these reasons that they can't believe they're dealing with addiction. And yet here we all are. Right. You didn't cause it. Right. And even if you did, here we are. Right. We have to be solution oriented and keep it moving. Right. And then you can't control it. It is a monster. It's like we've compared it to the predator. It shows up in different forms. There's no head or tail. You're not going to get a handle on it and control it. There, you just can't. There are steps to take and things you can do in coping with that person and in handling them, but you're not going to control them to a decision. You're just not. They have to decide it for themselves. And you're not going to cure it. There's nothing you can do to cure it. They have to be in some sort of recovery and working some sort of a, a program or working on mindfulness or something along those lines to actively get better and stay sober. You can't cure it. So that's my advice is the three C's and inform yourself as much as you possibly can. Have a good support system. I love the three C's. I think it's great because it allows somebody who is dealing with somebody that's in the throes of addiction to detach in a way that it's no longer feels like it is a, a, a emotionally hitched to you right or who you are or your identity or what you have done right that it is not it is not a reflection of you that right. somebody it's, has an addiction it's a disease yeah you can't cause another human being can't cause a disease it is a disease and you can't, you're right, you, you're dang right, you can't control it. The addict can't control it. Nobody else right. can either, right? right. Um, and uh, and there is no cure. Right. We can recover. And my experience has been that I have a daily reprieve based on my spiritual condition. So yeah. if I maintain my spiritual condition today, I don't have to drink it. I don't have to use. But there is no cure. Right. You're absolutely right. And that's that I have to apply those concepts still because because even when he had gone into sobriety, you start getting you either manipulate yourself or you can be manipulated that you have to tiptoe or you're going to cause a relapse. I'm not going to cause you to relapse. Plenty of people move back home and live next door to a drug dealer and they don't relapse. You're going to relapse or you're not. I'm not causing it. Right. 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 So those three C's are they, they are powerfully encouraging to remember for your own sanity that I, my hands are off of this. It's just going to happen like it happens. And addicts love to blame other people. I don't know how to break it to you, but it's like our yeah. favorite thing to do, Annie, is <laughs> to blame other people. Oh, yeah. Because we love, a, we love a reason to use. We love a reason to drink. And yeah. we're going to find one, uh, but sometimes people in our lives make it really easy. Um, and we can, uh, and sometimes we can't. So to be able to unhitch from that and say, you know what, um, I'm not going to give you that power. I don't have that power to make you use or drink. Only you do. Right. And I, I try to look at situations as when I'm kind of pulling off the meltdown part of it or surging with somebody, I try to step back and, okay, what can I work out in myself? And I would always wonder, how am I getting tripped up so much? And I came to the conclusion that I have a weight problem. And all moms tend to have a weight problem. I'm not able to wait on the solution or the results. I'm trying to get my answers and get the information and force them forward. And so I have a ter I started realizing I have this terrible weight problem. And because I go crazy with it, trying to force the consequences, I'm easily made to look crazy. So that becomes a distraction. Okay. So it's a, 
that's the insanity of addiction on all sides. Right, right. And uh, I'm a huge, uh, obviously, uh, advocate of the 12 steps. They saved my life. And right. it sounds for all intents and purposes, they really have helped transform your life and your son's life. Right, yes, he actively works those. And I always cling to the first one, which is that I am powerless. And that is something I have to remind myself since I do have try to put my knowledge to use and I do have this crazy energy that um, I've put toward it I have to remember at the end of the day no matter the circumstance I am ultimately powerless I can't control my own opinions and thinking sometimes how am I going to control somebody else's behavior there's nothing I can do say think or feel that's going to control this or make this any better I am powerless I can only control me as much as you want to at times still I bet because I know for me I can't always control if I want to uh, use or I want to hit my eject button. I always like to call it my eject button. When life gets too hard, when something, when there's uh, too many feelings, there's something going on that I can't deal with, I like to hit that eject button so that I can, so I can get out. And I'm not responsible, Annie, for my first thought. But I am responsible for my first action. And that's what right. the program has taught me is that I don't have to act the way I feel. So right. today I get to feel my feelings all the way through. And then I get to pray about it. Or I get to call my sponsor. Or I get to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Or I get to do something different that I used to do. So I don't have that eject button anymore. And that eject button, by the way, gets harder and harder to find the longer I'm in recovery. Right. That, that eject button gets a little harder to find, and I'm a little less trigger happy on the eject button the longer I am in recovery. And that's and that's growth. And you talked about patience. I'm not patient. I hate yeah. waiting. That's the whole yeah. deal when it comes Especially when to it's an urgent matter. Are you kidding? When... Yes. Right. That's the whole instant for me and for addicts. Guess what? Instant gratification. I want right. what I want. I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it. Right, and I want a problem solved. I'm very type A. Get the issues on the table. As ugly as the truth is, I'll hear it about myself too, and then let's keep on going because then the problem's solved. So when you've got somebody who's not wanting to get to the bottom right, of it, right, not wanting right. the problem solved, they're wanting you to shut up so they can get to the end result. It is a... It is a Terrible wrestling match. Oh my gosh, that must that I can only imagine a person who is actively trying to get to the bottom of it, and then the addict who's trying to say there's nothing to get to the bottom of, right? You right, know, it's and, you. Right, you're the problem. You, you're crazy. You're and it's a, it, the gaslight effect, right? Where, yeah. you know, we're going to convince you that you're crazy. And we, everybody else for a minute. That's right. It, or anybody that we can, so long as the focus isn't on us and our addiction, to be honest. Right. And I will say that there's a positive that comes from everything. So I would also, it, it taught me to really train myself and to make progress in areas where I did need to tone it down. And I did need to watch how I communicated and how I chased after information or chased after results. I didn't want to come across like, we got to solve this now. And I talk really, really fast and I've got a point to prove and everything I'm saying is true. And here's the evidence because that does sound crazy. Even if I'm right, you can deliver a a, a right message and deliver it wrong and it's not heard. And that's exactly what I was doing. So it taught me to back up and speak a little bit more credible. Like, yes, Mrs. So-and-so I did. I did call you stupid. 
but here's why. <laughs> you know, so like you, you learn not to get caught up too much in defending yourself. You sharpen your, your own behavioral skills when you're dealing with somebody who's challenging you on everything and everything in the world is your fault. Right. So you really learn to, hopefully, I did anyway, step back and think, okay, maybe I need to clean this area up or tone it down. So how is your relationship with your son today? Um, well, I, I, um, we, we do lock horns still from time to time. I always like to say there's no utopia once right. that they, they enter sobriety. Um, we still can have pretty good conflict and things get triggered. And I heard it compared to, I'd ask you the question, if you take a drunk horse thief home and let them sober up on your couch, what are you left with? A drunk, uh, a sober horse thief. Yes. Now, by no means is my son a horse thief. However, that that is a metaphor that means they may be sober, but there's still issues to work out and to work through. You're you're recovering from a lot of PTSD and trauma and a lot of nasty conflict. So we have a good relationship, but we still tend to lock horns and are both triggered to him feeling like I'm calling him out and he's older now and doesn't want to be called out like a child and me feeling like, well, what are we returning to? And then we both have to say, okay, let's unhitch from this. I'll go walk my dog or, you know, go take a moment and breathe and do whatever the case may be, flip on the TV, and then we'll revisit this. But we're not, we can't surge with these triggers anymore. So that's, our relationship is still a work in progress, but it's not terror like it was, and it's not daily conflict like it was. That's a gift in and of itself. It is a gift, yes. And I've come to realize I can't chase every car he's in preventing a car accident. I can't chase this lifestyle to prevent his death. You know, if it happens, it happens. There's, I've done everything. I can't prevent his death. I can't watch that he never inhales secondhand smoke or steps off a curb too soon. Right. I, I still I just have to be thankful for today, that he's here today. He's healthy today. Our relationship today is good, and today's all I have. Today's all we all have. I, um, I developed and I have a little bit of a wordplay obsession and, and definition obsession. So I developed, a, I started studying the word equanimity. And it means basically calm in the midst of difficulty. So I compare it to sitting on the couch and reading, or maybe you're trying to sew or meditate or whatever, and there's a jackhammer outside the window. And you kind of have to pull yourself in and maintain that peace so you don't get caught up in just stepping out of the eye of the storm. So equanimity and serenity and all of the things that go along with wellness and recovery are the goal now, not exposing, catching results. That's uh, such a shift that you spoke to in terms of what you're after is wellness and if you're well you're better able to respond to the things that happen in your life good bad or indifferent and it really for me speaks to the power of recovery that we get to focus on getting ourselves well and and i can only truly be of service to the God of my understanding and the people that I touch on a daily basis if I am practicing those principles to the best of my ability in every facet of my life. Now, there's right. days that I do better and days that I do not so good. But the, but the bottom line is because I'm working recovery, because I'm sober, because of those things, I have the ability to experience those consequences all the way through if there's negative consequences for something that I've done. And I get to be able to then uh, 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 learn from those in a very real way because before an active addiction, I never learned from it because I got to anesthetize 
the consequences from a, from an emotional standpoint. Right. That's, that goes back to the equanimity. And, and if you, I studied the eye of the storm. I would study anything that I felt like I was experiencing. So in the eye of the storm, that's the calmest place. But the most violent place is just outside. So if you step just outside, and it really depends on how vulnerable and rattled you are. Because I can sometimes step outside and be fine. But if I'm just newly, freshly shaken, and I run into somebody who maybe doesn't make me feel safe or, you know, pushes a button or isn't somebody close to me and the situation's brought up or maybe implied negatively toward me, because a lot of people don't understand that it's not family cause. Um, I have to return to that equanimity and not listen to the vitriol from anyone else or within myself even. I have to return to that eye of the storm and the calm. And that's, that is a daily practice. One of the things I heard in a meeting that I absolutely love is that if the world is going crazy, there's a way that you can stay not crazy, and that's by being centered. And right. they compared it to the, the, the little deal on the playground that spins around, right, and you hang on on the very outside of it. Right? Yeah. And yeah. you're on the outside of it and it's going super fast and you feel super dizzy, right? 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 And yeah. everything's spinning. The world is spinning and I'm going to vomit. But there is a way to stay centered. And that, <laughs> and that way is to Just stay that, right that in the middle. Way. That's right. Stay right in the middle. If you stay right in the middle of that, uh, uh, that spinning uh, disaster that they call a playground, um, you're okay, right? Right. One of my um, cousins just sent us a picture of that playground ride, and we were talking about how my sister had don't get on it. Just don't engage in it. Don't participate in the madness. When everything's going crazy, stay centered, but don't participate. And, there, and it always comes back to that. You can tell if something's peaceful. or You can tell if you're chasing after crazy or you're dragged into it. And you do have the choice. Uh, a, friend, a therapist friend of mine would say, what are you feeling? What can you do? What are you going to do? Ask yourself those three questions. I'm feeling kind of crazy and worked up with this and panicky. And my adrenaline is, what can I do? I can just—I don't know what I can do, but I can step back and breathe and calm myself down. And oxygen will will flood peace to your extremity. You take your breath. I want to get on that ride. You know, I want to talk a little bit about um, your uh, your book and uh, what. Um, uh, tell me, tell me what inspired you to write the book. Tell me what. Uh, what you hope to get out of it? Well, when I actually was in the third grade, I had a teacher who knew I had a hectic life. And I, it's, that's all in the book. And I would come to school and I would be really rattled about life at home. So she would, I had a big vocabulary then. And I used to, I used to enter all these spelling bees and I really loved language. So she would send me away from the classroom and have me write these things she called thought ramblings, where I would describe nature and the sounds and all the stuff to calm me. And that was huge in my life. And she had told me one day, you're going to grow up and write when you're older, and I'm going to read everything you write. So I'd always remembered that, and it kind of like became a, an obsession where I would write lengthy emails to people and um, 
that's just kind of how I communicate and vent and release myself. So I did that through the years, and then I wrote these two articles that ended up kind of uh, getting attention, and I expanded them into a full-length book and based it on my story. I had always known I'd wanted to write, but I wasn't very good at it, so I just ended up writing the truth. So it kind of took off from there. And I actually contacted that teacher when I got signed to a publisher and told her, hey, I got published, do you remember? And she's like, oh my goodness, yes. And she's running for state representative for my state now and asked me if I'd write a letter for her campaign. So, I mean, it is, that was an amazing gift of full circle. That is, that is a true gift. That's amazing. And I think it speaks again to the power of recovery the power of the ability to work on ourselves and then through that process discover a calling or some additional meaning. You know, for me, being on this podcast and doing this podcast has been a great joy for me and a avocation that I never would have dreamed I would do even three years ago. Right. So right. the uh, in this book, what do you hope to get out of it? Um, I just wanted to basically detail issues of pathology and dysfunction that can be overcome and sometimes have to be identified. You don't even realize that you're in the midst of it. I would often think it was just a bad day or a, or a personality conflict. And then I would get educated by somebody or a resource and it would be like, oh, this is not just a bad day. This is somebody's inability to recognize nuance and that's alcoholic behavior or this is you know crying wolf type behavior all of those things so I wanted to identify issues of family dysfunction and pathology that you don't have to walk in lifelong and you don't have to be affected by lifelong and I'd always received a lot of it like I'm just it's because I'm I'm just kind of worthless so in working through those issues and coming out of so much conflict always being in conflict and resolving all of these problems and the shame and embarrassment and fear issues, having come to a place of peace, I kind of wanted to reach back to anybody who might be walking the same floors I walked alone and say, you can come out of this and reach a level of calm and, and sit through a movie again without checking your phone and, and have lunch with my sister without having to vent or worry about the next blow up in life. Life doesn't have to be about blow ups and conflict. You can reach this level of, I'm not walking in any of these behaviors, but I'm also not participating or affected by them. So I, I wanted to just give a full circle message of that. The power of your story is amazing. So Thank congratulations you. on the book. I am a fierce advocate of the power of the recovery journey and how we tell our stories. I firmly believe that that's how we learn from each other as a community. I feel that is the most powerful way to be able to bring people together through a common experience. And when people hear your story, Annie, and they're able to identify, and they're able to say, yeah, I felt like that too. Yeah, I've experienced that too. It's not just me. Maybe it's not just my fault, and it doesn't have to be my identity. That's right. And I think and that's I so powerful. Through, I had to work through all of that as I was writing it. Um, the year that I made that my project, I pretty much lived in seclusion, and with just me and my dog, and I would walk through this inner city neighborhood, and I would have to pass 
um, homeless people and step over vomit and syringes. And it was a decent area, but we passed through some inner city. And I just made all of that a part of I'm recovering, I'm healing, I'm getting to the next step, and I'm reaching back into this same community to say, you can overcome your family issues that are handed to you or maybe taught to you as normal, and you can also overcome being affected by them. And you can come out even better than when you came in. And if you set a goal in the midst of it, you come out with an accomplishment as well as being healed from it. And I think when we... You cannot, you know, I heard, uh, you, you cannot have a testament. You cannot have a story if you don't have a test. Right. And so, in that regard, it really feels like you've come more than for full circle on it because you've really been able to come out of this experience, this struggle that you had for those period of years, and coming out of a uh, complicated, dysfunctional family of origin through the addiction of your son and you've really come out and been able to experience a different plane of life, a different consciousness, a different reality and then be able to share that experience, strength and hope with the rest of the world. It's beautiful. I appreciate everything that you've said on this podcast. If people want to reach out to Annie Please email us at share at wayoutcast.com. I will absolutely pass that information on to Annie. Annie, thank you so, so much. Uh, Tell me how people can get your book when it comes out. Um, Well, there's a Facebook page, but I'm still kind of shy. So it started out small, but it's um, unhooked on Facebook. And the book will be released in November. We'll post updates on that page as it comes out. It may, it may come out a little bit early, but we're shooting for my birthday, which is November 9th. Annie, uh, we will be in touch throughout uh, the next months and beyond. And so when that book hits, we will be absolutely promoting that on our social media platforms, our Thank Facebook you. page, our Twitter, our Instagram, so that people know that this book is out and this is ready to rock and that uh, those that are in similar situations <laughs> have a great resource that they can pick up and uh, and uh, get some invaluable experience, strength, and hope. I appreciate your time. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, let's not be strangers, Annie. Thank you. I've loved talking with you, and I just want to leave you on the concept that um, no matter what it is you're faced with or you've been labeled as, you can overcome it. And no matter what, as long as you have breath, you have hope. That is what I've always clung to. As long as there's breath, Wind is hoping. There's still breath. So there's still hope. God bless you. That's all. <laughs> Bye, Annie. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out, where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. There you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Garden. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety day will.